You're listening to Maps, Magic, and Medicine. I'm James Perla. Deep in the Colombian rainforest, there are uncontacted or isolated people, indigenous groups that don't want contact with the outside world, including other indigenous groups. Some people consider isolation impossible in our world and seek to contact isolated groups in order to study them, bring them medicine or religion. But for others, like Daniel Aristizabal of the Amazon Conservation Team Colombia, isolation is a self-conscious act of resistance that should be protected. The effects of contact can be seen throughout generations. The indigenous people who help us protect isolated people remind us that all the time. They still feel they are facing uh, the backlash of colonization and uh, the conquest. On this final episode of Maps, Magic, and Medicine, we'll hear about the challenges of protecting isolated people without contacting them, and the Colombian historian whose research proved the existence of isolated groups in Colombia. So today on Maps, Magic, and Medicine, knowledge for protection. Most indigenous groups living in the Amazon share stories of other groups who escaped Portuguese and Spanish rubber traders to flee into the rainforest. Historical records of explorers and missionaries also document accounts of indigenous groups who seem to disappear entirely. These tribes are now known as uncontacted or isolated groups. And it doesn't mean that a tribe has never had contact with the outside world, but rather that they've made the autonomous decision to live without contact, often because of the violence and traumas associated with colonization. A lot of the tribes that we work with are tribes who survived the rubber trade. Uh, So they know the consequences of contact. They recognize uh, that the decision to isolate is not an easy decision, that that tribes live deep in the forest without contact with anybody else is not an easy way to live. It's a way that is ahistorical in a way because all societies in the world have exchanged products, exchanged uh, genes, uh, exchanged knowledge. Uh, but the decision to isolate is a difficult decision. Nevertheless, these tribes recognize that they must respect that. I spoke with Daniel Aristizabal from his office in Colombia. He's been researching isolated groups for years, first with the Colombian National Park Service and now with the Amazon Conservation Team. I am the coordinator for the Isolated Peoples Program in ACT Colombia. Currently, he's working to establish policies with the Colombian government to ensure protection for isolated groups, protection from contact in any form, and legal protection that would guarantee the right for uncontacted groups to remain in isolation. Because in recent years, the dangers are only increasing. The threats are usually divided in three. The threats that are directly related to development, dams, roads, railroads, ports, oil exploration, formal legal mining. Then there's the illegal informal threats, illegal mining, illegal logging, in the case of Colombia, illegal armed groups. And then there's a third group of threats that we kind of called like... um, other actors or something like that. And by this I mean tourists, explorers, adventurers, scientists, anthropologists who don't believe that these people should remain uncontacted, and missionaries. Danielle has seen the effects of contact firsthand. When you talk to these people, usually the effects of contact have been very traumatic. When people are contacted, um, 
there's an initial boom of information and joy, but then in the in the long term, these people will be relegated and marginalized in our society, and they will be prone to prostitution, to slavery, to exploitation, uh, to alcoholism, to violence. Um, so that's the main thing about avoiding contact. Usually within the first five years, it's been proven by many studies that uh, around 50% of the population perishes, dies within the within within the first five years of contact. But there's been cases where 80, 90% of the population has died. And usually when these diseases hit, uh, the people that die first are the elders and the, and the children and the youth. And if you think about it, these are the vehicles of knowledge. If the elders die, then all the knowledge dies. And if the youth and the children die, then there's nobody to learn. So how do you protect isolated groups without direct contact? Well, one way is to protect the forest itself. You want their territories to be healthy for the isolated people to have a he- to be healthy as well. So the first thing is to protect the environment and the resources. You could be affecting isolated tribes without actually contacting them. If you're taking away the resources, poisoning their rivers, hunting their food, taking out their trees, because these people are the one, the groups of, of humans that are mostly dependent on the forest. They, 100% of their survival depends on the forest. So if the forest is not healthy, they are not healthy. But one of the biggest challenges is knowing what areas of the forest to protect, where in the forest isolated groups live. The late Colombian historian Roberto Franco not only proved the existence of isolated groups in Colombia, but he also meticulously mapped areas where isolated groups could live. And the process was far from simple. He was a historian that had traveled since the late 70s, I think, in the Amazon. And it was kind of a side project the whole time to start gathering stories and interviews of people who've heard or seen about these people. But he never did a systemic analysis at the time. Uh, in 2009-2010, he got support from ACT to actually do the investigation. And because he was a historian, the first place he looked at was history. So he went into old libraries, old archives, uh, went into church libraries, uh, started looking at testimonies, started looking at journals of travelers, maps. And he started identifying, especially in the maps, uh, groups that no longer existed. And so the question was, well, what happened to these groups? And then he started identifying patterns of migration within these groups in the maps. So, for example, the Capuchin monks saw them in 1680 in this river. And then in 1717 or something, these other monks or slave traders saw them in this other river. So he started tracing you know, a map of the migration and started uh, reading historical references and see, well, some groups actually got extinct, some groups died of disease, some groups were divided by the slave traders, but other groups just seemed to disappear. And there was a pattern, a migration pattern, that was moving closer to where we believe are today. So the hypothesis was growing stronger. So that was the first, the first thing to do that whole historical research. And then he started doing interviews on the field. So interviewing people who probably seen them, heard of them, or people who've heard stories of them. So he started interviewing everybody around the area. And then you start to see it on a map, all these points. And they're kind of pointing to the same place that the historical reference was pointing to. 
So then once you have that, you make maps of the region. Uh, we tend to think that the forest is all the same, like a big green carpet, but there's different small ecosystems within the forest. So you start identifying the places, for example, the highlands, the places that are rich in resources, of where you think these people could potentially be, right? And then you overlap that with the interviews and with the historical references. And then you start getting hotspots. Once you have that, uh, we designed an overflight path of these places where they could potentially be. And Roberto was lucky enough that on his first flight, uh, he found some of the malocas, which are the long homes, the long houses where these people live. And that was a confirmation in 2010 that uh, they were isolated peoples in Pure National Park. After completing this research methodology and identifying isolated groups in Pure National Park, Franco continued to expand the scope of the project. He would always say, "There's now we have a bigger responsibility because we confirmed the existence of these people here. He wanted to test his findings in a different part of the Colombian Amazon, so he moved up from Pure National Park in the southeast to Colombia's largest national park, Chiribiquete. So in 2013, late 2012, Roberto started carrying out the research methodology that he had developed for Pure National Park in the south of Chiribiquete National Park. And in one of these trips, uh, he was starting to train um, a colleague of ours who was, indig- who was an indigenous leader also, Daniel Matapi, who had always uh, been kind of like a bridge between the Western world and the indigenous world. He'd always worked for NGOs, but at the same time worked very closely with the indigenous communities. He was working with us in ACT and Roberto was starting to bring him on board so that he would also lead the Isolated Peoples program here in Colombia. Uh, but sadly, uh, September 13th, they got on a plane and there was a plane crash and they both uh, passed away. There was an investigation that took place. It was a long time after the accident. The access to the place where the accident happened was difficult. It was a clear depiction of what it means to be in the rainforest. Lack of institutional presence, lack of commitment by the government entities, no clear story about what happened, no liability, no responsibility, nobody taking responsibility for the accident. And well, losing somebody like that, especially for Roberto's family, was very difficult, losing somebody in an accident like that. Today, the legacy of his work lives on in the dedication to work closely with indigenous groups to protect uncontacted groups in the Colombian Amazon. Roberto spearheaded the idea that indigenous people and the government should work together in a national policy and in a protection strategy on the field. According to Daniel, this protection strategy requires everyone to be involved. Government actors, indigenous peoples, conservationists, and anyone who uses the forest. In addition to patrolling the borders, the people, the land, and the cultural practices must be respected through legal recognition. And it's a central theme in many of the topics we've discussed throughout this series, that protection and cross-cultural understanding go hand in hand. This is not about exploration and, you know, the whole research is only, it's a rice-based research approach. So 
we do research because we want to guarantee rights. The interest here is to create as much knowledge as we can, both Western knowledge and traditional knowledge, so that we can have a robust and efficient protection system in place. Uh, Roberto used to say, conocer para proteger, which means knowledge to protect. You know, you have to know in order to protect. And that's kind of our goal. Knowledge for protection resonates with the mission to put people at the center of the conservation strategy, to ensure that the people who know the forest best are the ones protecting the forest for the next generation. Here's a selection of some of the voices we've heard throughout the series. Knowledge is protection when one's cultural knowledge is at risk of disappearing. And he says, that's where we come from. That's our origin, our source. That's where our elders are, where our wisdom comes from. We need to say that. When the allure of modernity and Western ways of knowing draws young people away from their traditions. Is it for me, it's all about two things. Protecting the bush and holding it for my grandchildren. Protecting one's knowledge is an opportunity to teach the next generation and build strength within one's community. When they come back to the Matawai area, they can look at the map, they can read the history, then they instantly know where they're from. But sometimes it's important to remember how little we really know. People who talk a lot don't know anything, and people who know are quiet, humble, and they speak very little. And respect those whose knowledge extends into things we can't even begin to imagine, let alone understand. That's why I can hear and understand the wind and the thunder. Even sitting here, he can have a connection to that which is negative, even if it's far away. In this series, we have featured people who protect their knowledge and use their knowledge for protection. In the end, we can't really know or fully understand how other people live. The isolated groups that we heard about today remind us of this. But the fact that these groups, who have never asked for anything, who continue to fight for their land, culture, and livelihood, the fact that they're being protected demonstrates that we're all linked, that our activity affects their health and the health of the forest, and also that the forest's health affects us. We each have our own traditions, cultures, and tools for navigating the world. But one thing that all connects us is health. Many of the voices on this series have made it clear that communities need to protect their health in order to survive. And having the ability to map their ancestral lands, the power to manage the intangible world, and the knowledge to practice traditional medicine heals their communities and the forest. If we open ourselves to heal and be healed by others, to listen to, learn from, and respect indigenous groups, and use tools like maps, magic, and medicine, then we'll have the knowledge we really need, the collective knowledge to protect the health of the world.
Maps, Magic, and Medicine was produced by me, James Perla, with Eric DeLuca, Isidoro Hasboon, Brian Hetler, Bruto Kemper, and Maria Mayer. Special thanks to Brian Hetler for recording Danielle in Colombia. The montage featured the voices of Raquel Gomez, Buta Wajimnu, Mark Plotkin, Granman Leslie Valentin, Naraj Hanuman, Taita Luciano Mutumbahoy, Carlos Ari, Jose de los Santos Sauna, and Liliana Madrigal. There were clips from each episode of the series. To listen to the entire series, visit mapsmagicandmedicine.com. This production was made possible by the Amazon Conservation Team. For more information about the Amazon Conservation Team and their 20 years of work, go to amazonteam.org. Thanks for listening.